Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho, our podcast about the prisoner, with me, Ethan. And me, Bex. And it's been a while since we've talked about the prisoner, but we're back with a continuation of our original Tally Ho series. And we're going to be talking a little bit in this first episode about the connections between both The Prisoner and one of our other favourite shows, Twin Peaks. Yes, I think uh, it was only a matter of time before the two worlds collided and we came up with an episode that uh, brings together our two big podcasting topics of conversation. Yeah, and this is very much going to be a tally-ho episode focused more on on the prisoner side of things. Uh, Obviously, those who listen to our stream, Time for Cakes and L, would know that we also talk a lot about Twin Peaks itself in the context of our Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee series. Uh, And I think if you've listened to all 50-odd hours of our Tally Ho episodes so far, (laughs) you'll know that even as we've been going through the series, episode by episode, and and discussing some of the uh, accessory work in the world of The Prisoner, we've always been talking a little bit about how it connects to uh, Twin Peaks as well. So as a preface to what we're going to be talking about, I think it was maybe just after season three, three of Twin Peaks when we started our series um, about The Prisoner that we put an article on our website which was called 10 Reasons Why Twin Peaks Fans Might Be Interested in Watching The Prisoner and I think that's kind of been the jumping off point for what we're going to be talking about in today's episode and if also you've listened to our previous episodes you'll know that we've had the pleasure of chatting on a couple of occasions to documentary filmmaker Chris Rodley who is one of the few people who has interviewed both Patrick McGowan and David Lynch and I think that was one of the uh, specific things that crystallized our idea of actually doing an episode that was focused on the links between both shows in addition to our smatterings of comments on on the connections as we've done both our Tally Ho and Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes. So what we're going to be covering in this episode is talking about the links between The Prisoner and Twin Peaks, looking at areas such as the creative vision that went into making both of the shows the, and the unusual routes that both of them took to making it to the screen and their structures as TV shows and the way that they both broke the mould about how television was made at the time. We're going to be talking a little bit about the locations which are very much characters in both uh, The Prisoner and Twin Peaks. So obviously in one you have the village, in the other you have the eponymous Twin Peaks itself. We're going to be talking a little bit about the aesthetics and the iconography which are rooted in these two shows, but which have become part of the pop culture lexicon as well. And we're going to be talking about direct connections between the two shows and the way that both of the shows were received by audiences and by critics, not just at the time they were aired, but the way the shows are now perceived through the passage of time and influence that they've both had on the landscape of television. Yeah, and I think to end we'll probably be covering a little bit about the influence The Prisoner had on uh, media in general, both in terms of art, TV, film, and of course, uh, probably looping back as well to the fact that The Prisoner itself, uh, I think it can be argued, had a strong influence on um, at least some aspects, quite specifically, of the creative process behind Twin Peaks, largely through co-creator Mark Frost. Yes, and it goes without saying there's going to be big spoilers ahead for both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks. So if you haven't watched born or either of the shows, then bear in mind we are going to be talking about things, and very specifically about finales, because that's going to come up quite a lot in the context of both shows. Yeah, I think we should just kick off. Yeah. So to start, I think 
the one thing that really jumps out when you start looking at shows like The Prisoner and Twin Peaks and try and understand a little bit about how they both um, sort of changed the mould of television um, in the respective periods that they were on is largely ingrained in sort of the creative process that may have gone into how they were brought to the screen. Um, the fact, I think, that the people behind them were largely aiming to change what TV itself could do as a medium and indeed challenge what television itself could and should aspire to. So when The Prisoner was made, uh, Patrick McGowan was at the time, I think, the highest paid actor on British television, <laughs> coming off the back of Danger Man. And as we've discussed in Tally Ho before, he decided to quit Danger Man. He was bored of making it. And he went to Lou Grade with the idea for The Prisoner and was basically given a cheque and told to go off and, and <laughs> make it because that was how Lou Grade functioned at the time. Um, but it was very much driven by him and by George Markstein, who was the co-creator of The Prisoner, and who was much more of a traditional writer and brought much more of a, a sort of traditional narrative influence into the show. Um, he'd previously been a journalist, he was almost certainly a spy at some <laughs> point, and he'd been a, you know, a story consultant on things like Danger Man. Yeah, I think he's credited as a script editor on The Prisoner. Clearly there as the show is being put together he did depart the making of the show sort of uh, midway through after you know after several episodes been made i think largely it was it was about the fact that both mcgowan and markstein had probably diverged in what their sort of idea of what the show was actually about and what it was going to become i think i think they basically just were on slightly different creative paths even though initially what had been put together was something that had been birthed from both of them and I know, I think, in later interviews, McGowan has said, you know, that, that he came up with the idea. I think conceptually, I think it's clear that it is something that, that he was probably behind. But I, but you cannot underestimate, I think, the influence, especially in the opening episodes, um, in terms of the production order when Mark Steen was still around, that made it very much the story of a, a spy in a secret village, um, which is very much based on, on Invalea Lodge, which is something that uh, Markstein knew about and told McGowan about almost certainly. Uh, the fact that even Markstein wrote The Cooler, which is basically a spy kind of novel, all the elements of it being about the government and the more traditional aspects of how you might interpret it literally. So, uh, you know, a retired spy, people trying to get the secrets out of him, not being sure whose side, who, you know, people are on. Um, I think that very much is, is Markstein's contribution. And I think you're right, he does he does bring that structure to what the show may have been about, even though I think McGowan was probably the driver behind the aesthetic, knowing that that's ultimately where the trajectory of the story was probably going to go. Yeah, and I think certainly when you look at some of the more avant-garde, inexplicable episodes that people still ponder over the meaning of today, those were the ones where Certainly towards the end, McGowan had taken almost complete control of the show. Yeah. He, he'd written episodes under pseudonyms. He directed some. He got rid of directors and writers <laughs> that he didn't like. And, and it, it became personal to the point where it's very difficult to see sometimes where Patrick McGowan as an actor ends and 
number six as a character begins, to the extent that even in the script, his character is simply referred to as P, which could be for both prisoner and Patrick. Yes, and I think that interviews that took place after the show had concluded, there was that ambiguity exactly that you're talking about that, that uh, McGowan fueled. Whereas I think Mark Steen said, well, yeah, it's a continuation of, da- you know, of Danger Man. It's John Drake, and that's what happened to him you know, afterwards. I don't think he meant it as a, as a literal continuation, but he meant that that was the spirit of the show that, that, that he intended. And I think McGowan felt that maybe having you know, conceived the whole world with Mark Steen, he realised it was a world that he wanted to play in and artistically drive. There's an a infamous interview that Patrick McGowan did back in the 70s. It was an interview conducted by broadcaster Warner Troyer for the Ontario Educational Communications Authority, and it's often referred to as the Prisoner Puzzle Interview, where he, he talks about the creation of the prisoner and some of the ideas behind it much more than I think he ever did in any other interview. And there's a point where he's talking about explaining the idea of the show to some of the writers that they brought on board to write some of the episodes and to come up with some of their treatments for the number of episodes that they needed to make because that was the number that Lou Grade wanted because they needed to sell it, basically, especially to the US. And he was asked, how did you describe or explain the concept of it when you sat down with the writers? He said... It was very difficult because they were also prisoners of conditioning and they were used to writing for the Saint series or the Secret Agent series. That's the other title for Danger Man. And it was very difficult to explain and we lost a few by the wayside. So clearly, even at the time, he was trying to get writers who had been you know, used to turning out scripts for very, you know, story of the week, classic ITC shows that suddenly he wanted to bring people along on this creative vision where they were doing something really very different. And he didn't just want people to churn out the same kind of stories that other shows would have been telling. Yes, yeah, so contrasting that with uh, Twin Peaks, that is very much the product of David Lynch and Mark Frost. Um, it was both of them together who, who conceived the show. They largely drove the series together during, uh, during the first season of it, at least. During the second season, uh, Mark Frost remains really as the lead showrunner. Lynch infamously started to step away from the show, especially as, as the critical reveal of Laura's killer was made. And he, he kind of seemed to lose interest in it to some extent, although ultimately he did return to it for the series finale, um, or the then series finale back in um, uh, season two ended. But then obviously when season three returned to the screen in 2017, both Lynch and Frost came back, and I think it's very much a show which is largely contribution of, of both the skill sets and visions of Frost and Lynch, something which I think really hadn't been put together since uh, certainly the first series and probably even specifically those early episodes of the first season as well, when they were both working together trying to work out what the world of Twin Peaks was about. And I think a lot has been said about Lynch being the driving force behind you know, the feel and the look of Twin Peaks. And I think there is an argument for that in terms of him being the, the obvious artist and, and director and bringing that sensibility to it as somebody who'd worked in film and was bringing that sort of cinema perspective to TV for the first time as well. But you cannot underestimate the contribution of Mark Frost throughout the whole series. I think you could argue that he's a bit like Mark Steen to Lynch's McGowan 
in the sense that Frost had come from uh, a television background. I think the big difference is Frost is not just a TV writer per se. I mean, he he really is, I think, somebody who cares about story, about structure and about narrative. And there are elements which I think marry quite well with Lynch, who I think was the person who could take that story and put images to it. But I don't think you can simply say that Frost is the uh, is the story guy and and Lynch is the person who puts it on screen. There's there's a lot more of a tighter intermingling of their contributions than I think uh, McGowan and Markstein had. Yes, and, and there also wouldn't have been any kind of sudden shock for Mark Frost if David Lynch goes off and, and films something really strange and, <laughs> and comes up with a, a, a completely odd idea of how to take a particular story, a particular episode, because they know one another, they know how they work, and they know what each of them brings to the um, creative process. Whereas I think, I don't think anyone could really have predicted when they started The Prisoner what Magoon was going to end up doing with it. Yeah. And I, I think it, it might explain why Markstein became frustrated and ultimately left the show partway through, because it wasn't the thing that he thought he was going to make. Yeah, I completely agree. I think when season three of Twin Peaks was being made, it was, I think they took a year or two to actually write the script for it. And they wrote it together um, over Skype. Um, I think that it's been reported that when uh, the show actually moved into physical production, Mark Frost went off and worked on The Secret History of Twin Peaks and ultimately The Final Dossier. So two books which were uh, sort of epistolary novels, which uh, are set in the world of Twin Peaks and supplement uh, the vision that we see on screen and extend it in many ways. But whilst he was actually filming it, David Lynch uh, was constantly rewriting uh, elements of the script and adding more bits to it. But he didn't just do it on his own, because I think even Frost has said that although these things were happening during physical production, he still checked everything that was happening and he simply approved it. So, so Lynch would rewrite things and clearly was making the TV show itself. But when he was changing things, adding things, rewriting things, he was still very much in tune with Frost, who was able to sort of review what was happening. It wasn't like the final thing that ended up on television was a shock to uh, to Mark Frost. Mm. So I think sort of overall, I think Twin Peaks needed both Lynch and Frost. Um, I think The Prisoner needed McGowan and Mark's team maybe at the beginning to kick it off, but it's clear that McGowan really drove the show beyond the initial premise and the concept. And Markstein leaves, and I think it's McGowan who solely sees the creative vision to its conclusion. So I mentioned you know, the, the difficulty sometimes in, in seeing the line that distinguishes number six from Patrick McGowan at times, but David Lynch himself has, has in a way, created some kind of idealised avatar of himself in the show, in the character of Dale Cooper, but also then appears himself in the show as a completely different character, but who, interestingly, is ultimately the boss in charge of everything. (laughs) (laughs) To supplement that point, it's funny that the creative partners behind the shows also have little cameos, um, (laughs) because Mark Frost appears, I think, twice in the series as Cyril Pons, once in you know series one and again in in uh, in season three, 
Mark Steen is obviously the guy behind the desk who accepts uh, McGowan's resignation. So when both shows were announced that they were being made, um, they caused a bit of a stir in different ways. With McGowan, it caused a stir when he left Danger Man. Um, It was in the press at the time because it was such a massive show. The star was quitting. What was he going to do next? And there was a huge weight of expectation, I think, bearing down on whatever he was going to do next. He may not have been jumping mediums. He was going from one TV show to another. But everyone was going to be waiting to see what he did next and waiting to see, is it going to be like Danger Man? Is it going to be something completely different? That there was no way he could get away from that expectation that came with being such a massive star at the time. Whereas when Twin Peaks was announced, it was being made for television. It was a big thing because here you suddenly had a film director who was making step into making TV. There's always been this idea that television is, you know, the sort of poor relation to film. And I think people have spent, I don't know, the past decade going on about the golden age of television and how all of these interesting people from the film world are now making television because you can do interesting things with it. But actually, that's been going on for so long now that I think the line between film being highbrow and TV being lowbrow just isn't relevant anymore. But back in the 90s, back in the early 90s, or even the late 80s, when they started putting the wheels in motion for Twin Peaks, it was kind of unusual for somebody to do that. Yeah, and as much as you have the excitement about you know David Lynch moving to television, it cannot be underestimated the fact that he's doing it with somebody like Mark Frost who had recently come off things like Hill Street Blues, which was a game-changing show in television itself, in that it started to introduce the idea of multi-episode spanning storylines, the ability to handle very large casts, rather than being a, you know, a, a show that was led by you know, one or two or a procedural kind of thing. I mean, that's how cop shows worked up until that point, but Hill Street Blues really broke that mould. So somebody who was interested in actually revolutionising the way that you told stories on television in Frost was probably perfectly married to somebody who had the the sort of artistic visual dictionary of David Lynch. And putting them both together, I think, is what put that, um, that together. Whereas when you look at The Prisoner, I suppose as you watch the series as a whole, you can start to see that maybe a lot of it was really mcgoohan driven um i think they're both very much creator driven shows but it's very clear that um it's it's having those those visions sort of in tune in the context of lynch and frost or at least led largely by mcgoohan in the context of the prisoner that means that those shows have some cohesive feel to them and i think it's most notable in the prisoner when mcgoohan steps away from the show when he's off making ice station zebra and things like that and other people have a turn at, at trying to create villain episodes almost. I mean, they're never as successful as the mm. ones where um, Magoon was driving them. And you can argue that the same thing happens um, predominantly in the, in the back end of season two of Twin Peaks when everyone's starting to flag in terms of understanding, you know, what do you do with that story? Because at that point, Frost and Lynch had been forced by ABC to reveal the killer of Laura. And the consequence of that is that they feel that the that the MacGuffin is is gone. It was, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't meant to be answered. Mm. Um, so how do you keep it interesting? And the simple thing is, I think they they weren't really sure. It's interesting that they they sort of reignited that spark in season three, but 
you do wonder how many other shows today would survive what happened in season two of Twin Peaks and still be able to return and receive the kind of acclaim they did. There, the real skill was, I think, largely Lynch's contribution in producing such a stellar finale to season two, which laid so many questions out for viewers that would ultimately last 25 years. Obviously, at the time, he didn't know the show would come back in 2017. It's interesting when you compare the impact that studio interference had on the making of the show, specifically with Twin Peaks, where they they forced them into the reveal that they didn't want. When you compare that to the, at times, very sort of hands-off attitude that Lou Grade seemed to have (laughs) on, on making The Prisoner. I mean, this is another quote from the Canadian TV interview of McGill when he's talking about pitching it to Lou Grade. I talked for 10 minutes and he stopped me and said, I don't understand one word you're talking about, but how much is it going to be? (laughs) So I had a budget with me, oddly enough, and I told him how much. And he says, when can you start? I said, Monday on scripts. And he says, the money will be in your company's account on Monday morning, which it was. And that's how we started. And it, it was very much that he... Um, Lou Grade had decided that you know, Magoon was a star, he trusted him, and he went he went with his gut for shows a lot. And if he felt that something was right to pursue, he just did it. There were no year-long, endless meetings and focus groups about whether people were going to like something. And I think he was probably slightly taken aback as to the end product that he got as well. Obviously, you know, later on. There were issues with the budget where, you know, the show went horribly over budget. They ended up ending it after the 17 episodes. But they never, to my knowledge, made them change anything about the plot or reshoot anything or interfere with the way the story was told on The Prisoner to the point where the last episode leaves almost all of the answers that the audience wanted unanswered. Mm. And you, you wonder whether a network today, or even in the 90s or whenever, would let somebody get away with that anymore. Yeah, I think, I think there's something to be said about the fact that both these shows were unusually made by people who were giving the freedom to make the show they actually wanted to make. Mm. In the case of Twin Peaks, though, in season two, you have a situation where the minute you have any interference, it derails the premise. Mm. Um, but the people keep working on it. And I think... It's interesting that you bring up the finales because those are really quite interesting in themselves sort of aspects of what made The Prisoner and Twin Peaks actually stand the test of time. I suppose in the context of The Prisoner, you have Fallout, which is a zany hour of television. (laughs) But I think it's very clear from McGowan's later interviews as well that actually it is the way he wanted to end the show. You know, that was the end of The Prisoner. And I think he had no intention of, of continuing in that world. I mean, that was the story. It began with Arrival. It ended in Fallout. And arguably, yeah, he did have these specific, you know, list of seven episodes that made up the, the core ethos of the show. But I think as a 17-episode arc, given that it's jumbled up against the actual production order, that was the story he wanted to tell. And the finale is everything that McGowan wanted to say about The Prisoner. That doesn't mean he's going to explain it, but that's how the show, in his mind, was going to end. Um, in contrast to that, you have Lynch and Frost, who at the time were sort of hitting the end of season two, and uh, Lynch returned 
rewrote the script by um, Frost, Harley Payton and Robert Engels on the fly, basically, <laughs> as he's filming this finale. And he's returned to the show after a long absence. And what's interesting is that that was not a series finale. That was a season finale. He was basically hoping that the show would get picked up for a third season and they could course correct it back in you know, 91, 92. It is ultimately, though, I think it can be regarded as the first proper series finale of the show. Um, but that's unintentional. It was a story that was meant to be continuing. And I think that even now, after season three, which ended a couple of years ago, everyone keeps asking Lynch and Frost if there's going to be a season four of Twin Peaks. They still talk about Twin Peaks as a continuing story. And they've always talked about the show like that. It's very much, you know, we've dipped into it at, at 25 year intervals and seen what's happened. Um, I think that's largely why Frost's uh, secret history book is one that delves into the world of Twin Peaks going back, you know, hundreds of years almost. Mm. Um, you know, it's because that, that town is always there. It's still there now. And so it's a continuing story. But I think very much season, season two was an unintentional series finale. And you could say the same about season three, because that wasn't the end of Twin Peaks. That wasn't how they advertised it. It was the end of the third season. So it might function ultimately as a great series finale, which will leave people wandering for years. Alternatively, it could be a season finale if they ever decided to bring it back. But I think McGowan was pretty adamant that Fallout was the end. Hmm. And it's a pretty difficult episode to ever come back from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And I, I think I think it's the kind of quandary that he's written himself into deliberately, almost so that no one would ever be able to continue the story. You know, I always wonder if if the only way the show could really have ever continued, although I'm very glad it didn't, would have been if McGoon had found a creative way to continue the spirit of the show in some way. Whereas Twin Peaks has mind-bending season finales, but they always write their way out of them. But by doing that, they often reinvent the show in some way as well and bring it up to date. Whereas The Prisoner, I think, was set within that period of time in, in which number six is in the village. Uh, the story that continues afterwards is, is largely revealed by the final shot of him sort of looping back to the opening of the <laughs> series itself and, and uh, driving down the runway in The Lotus. And if you've heard or read Mark Frost's talk about The Prisoner at any point um, and the influence that it's had on him as a writer, I think you can see the way in which the existence of The Prisoner has had a creative influence on Twin Peaks itself, certainly from Frost's point of view. When The Prisoner had its 50th anniversary a couple of years ago, he was uh, tweeting about it saying, you know, he called it the goat, the greatest of all time, said it his uh, number one TV show from the 1960s. And in a response to someone asking him about it, he said, draw a straight short line from The Prisoner to my whole career. Huge influence and inspiration for me, McGowan ruled. <laughs> and I think you've got that aspect coming in from Frost. Lynch doesn't really have those kind of influences from, you know, from McGowan. I think although Lynch is often quite elusive when it comes to discussing sort of where his ideas are from and, uh, and the like, I think it's, it's clear from what he produces that uh, there's a lot of Lynch on screen um, when he makes something on, on, on TV or film. But also when he does refer to influences, uh, there's a lot that comes from philosophy, his interest in TM, but also from art in terms of sculpture and painting 
the performing arts, uh, other filmmakers, the way that the medium of, of sort of visual arts and performing mm. arts um, kind of can be synthesized into the narrative of a story. I think that's where you have this marrying of Frost and Lynch. I think I think you have this person who's come from uh, from the literary arts almost um, in terms of anything that could be written, whether it's you know scripts or or plays or TV or film in the form of Frost, and then you have somebody who's who's coming more from from the visual arts. If that it kind of makes sense, and I think that that's what makes the complete package of Twin Peaks, but was uniquely captured, I think, in in McGowan alone in making the Prisoner. Yeah, I think because. Lynch's background was as a visual artist before he became a filmmaker. He was studying art mm. and painting, and indeed he still does, and sculpting and um, making lamps and <laughs> music and, and everything else you can imagine. I think his interest isn't that much in narrative as it is in experience, and that filmmaking or television can be an experience in the same way as a painting can or a sculpture can, that they don't require narrative. They don't require a question that's posed to then be answered. You know, the, the, the experience of looking at a series of paintings isn't you know, a, a, a call to an adventure and then a series of obstacles to overcome and then a resolution. It's, it's, it can be whatever you want it to be and you, you bring your own experience to the experience of, of viewing it. And I think he treats film and television in exactly the same way, that it doesn't have to have a conventional narrative. And I think in some ways, the way The Prisoner ended up, not necessarily the way it began, but the way it ended up, was also somewhat of a rejection of the idea that you have to answer all the questions. And you have to provide a, a satisfying conclusion that everyone's going to say, oh, yeah, I understand now. I understand exactly what was going on all along. I know who done it. <laughs> They've revealed the killer in the parlour. We can all go home. We're all happy now. That, that's not the point when it's more of an experience that you bring something to yourself and then take something away from. Both sets of creators have uh, talked about not only their shows, but also the finales in particular, as being specifically about that. It's what you bring to the shows as well. There is no definite answer. I think they have, potentially in the context of sort of internal logic, what they think the show is about, but they don't worry too much about whether that translates to everyone in the audience. They almost want everyone to experience it and have their own interpretation of it, and they're never going to confirm or deny what anyone thinks the show is actually about, because ultimately both Twin Peaks and The Prisoner are to a large extent, the product of what the viewer puts into them. But I think, I think going back to, to Frost again, it's kind of interesting because although they are experiences, both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks, I think Frost has a specific interest which is born out of him writing books like The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which are about world building. Mm. Um, I know that these shows are meant to be an experience, but Frost is clearly very interested in, in, in the worlds that these shows occupy. Um, the fact that he's written books that that sort of have a detailing of the of the world that the TV shows are in and potentially will never actually go into, but just providing that that backdrop to what you see on screen. And also the fact that Frost is so interested as well in conspiracy theories and mm. secret organizations and and uh, and ultimately in the case of Twin Peaks season three, 
this fight against an unknown evil, um, mm. which takes the form of, of Judy and Twin Peaks, but in in uh, the prisoner is largely this uh, this unnamed opposition to Number Six, who's trying to find out everything about him. I think there's something about the fact that both shows are are still rooted in a fundamental concept of of somebody finding themselves in a world they're not familiar with and there being the ultimate challenge of of some unknown antagonist out there which takes both literal and, and figurative terms throughout both the shows as well and just after season three ended uh, mark frost um, was on a podcast um, i think it was the talk house podcast with uh, sam esmail who's the creator of mr robot um, and what he says from that is the prisoner had its first run on american television in the summer of 1968 on cbs and 2001 came out and those two things imploded my mind because everything I thought I knew about narrative and storytelling up to that point was blown to smithereens. That last episode of The Prisoner is an acid trip. It takes you places at nothing that had ever aired on American television, as far as I'm aware, had ever even approximated. Both of them literally blew the top of my head off and changed my perceptions about what storytelling could be. And I think my course was kind of set by those two events. And it's interesting what you were saying about both shows as they developed having this idea of this struggle against an unseen evil that is presenting some kind of opposition and that at the the center of these stories you have two characters who are held up as incredibly moral and almost unwaveringly moral figures of Dale Cooper and of number six to the point where they their unwavering morals are almost an obstacle <laughs> to uh, to what they're trying to achieve at times there's certainly a lot that can be said about Cooper's arc in season three, which is completely rooted in the fact that his moral code becomes sort of the driver of, of the whole story, I think. It's about, it's about him trying to undo events that he has no power over and the fact that he ultimately is potentially making the situation worse <laughs> as he struggles to right wrongs that he has no ability to really handle although you could argue that the conclusion is you know is very much ambiguous at the end of season three it's very much about somebody who is putting everything on the line to follow a specific course and you could argue that cooper ends up lost in that at the end of season three whereas number six uh, believes he has ultimately freed himself at the end of fallout only to reveal that actually he might have found himself sort of under the oversight of, of, of what the village was about all along anyway, simply because it wasn't an external thing. It was an internal thing. It was something he carried around in, in himself, whereas the world of Twin Peaks is, I think, very much external to Cooper. Yeah, and the fact that these opposing evil forces that exist seem at the end to be insurmountable and undefeatable is part of what makes both finales incredibly memorable and very powerful but also potentially upsets people who were hoping for a more traditional end to a narrative where there would be answers and the good guys would win and it would be an ambiguously satisfying ending. And I think even McGowan has stated a couple of times that he felt that the initial backlash to Fallout was because the audience wanted some Bond villain at the end they wanted the chair to turn around and reveal there was somebody who was behind the village an identifiable evil that would be taken out by number six 
Six would win and he would have overcome the village in some way. That would have been the victory and he would have escaped and he would have gone back to his normal life. And that's just not what the story was about to him. But the idea of not everything being explained, I think, is it kind of feeds into the idea that, you know, both shows ultimately also have a, a highly sort of surrealistic aspect to them. Mm. I think there you have to move more to Lynch than Frost because as a filmmaker, I think it's, I think people have written a lot about this, but but Twin Peaks and the world of Lynch is heavily influenced by um, surrealist painters and filmmakers, but notably, I think, uh, Jean Cocteau and things like Orphe, mm. um, which is something which is found heavily in, in Twin Peaks, but Orphe in particular is also strongly linked to aspects of uh, of the prisoner as well. There's a lot of evidence that McGoon was influenced by it in some way. There are elements of Dance of the Dead, which most notably are, are linked to Orphe. Mm. And of course, he met him, I think, at, at Cannes. Yeah. And there's that famous, potentially sort of apocryphal meeting that would have taken place, you know, between them, um, where you've got the meeting of the meeting of minds that you kind of would have liked to have been a fly on the wall at, understanding <laughs> sort of how they would think about what you know what they were trying to create as as artists as well. But go back to the surreal as well. You have the fact that Lynch is um, heavily influenced by Kafka as well. Mm. So a lot of that in in Twin Peaks, and I think. In Gordon Cole's office, you can see that that picture of of Kafka on the wall yeah. <laughs> as well. And I think you know Kafka plays a massive part in in sort of driving the surreal and strange and bureaucratic aspects of what the village is about mm. for uh, McGowan in the context of the prisoner. So moving on, let's talk about the structure of, of both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks. I think the most telling aspect of, sort of the structural links between these shows might actually be the fact that The Prisoner was largely a, a satire of uh, spy and action shows. I mean, you know, Danger Man itself. It's a, it's a response to, uh, to that kind of television, which was um, so predominant at the time. At the same time, you have Twin Peaks, which I think is largely a satire of of soap operas that were airing, you know, in the late eighties and uh, and nineties. Yeah, and it's some of the more mundane storylines that are going on in Twin Peaks, particularly in the in the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, could be straight out of a, a daytime soap opera. Mm. You know, all the stuff with the sawmill and everybody double crossing each other. Um, it's all very days of our lives <laughs> kind of thing, to the point where they have their own spoof soap opera that exists in the world of Twin Peaks called Invitation to Love yeah. where there are twins and evil twins and people coming back from the dead and all sorts of things. But given that both these shows are to an extent spoofing or satirising what the genres were producing at the time I think it's really interesting that both shows have gone on to develop their own aesthetics that sort of define a new genre uh, of television themselves. And I think we'll come to that in a later section of the podcast. And possibly the biggest distinction between the structure of the two is that with Twin Peaks you have this huge cast largely recurring from one episode to the next, like a soap opera would be. Whereas with The Prisoner, aside from number six, I think that the only characters who appear in more than a couple of episodes are the butler and the supervisor. Mm. And that's it. There's no big ensemble cast. And aside from the beginning and the end you could jumble up the episodes in any particular way that you wanted and it would still make sense because there's no soap opera style episode to episode progression of some of these storylines. Mm. 
the way there is in Twin Peaks. And maybe that's an element of the influence creatively that people behind these shows actually were having to respond to. Because in the same way that McGowan could basically make a series of episodes where the actual viewing order is still debated to this day, um, although there is a, a relatively defined production order that doesn't necessarily reflect uh, what was um, put on screen. And certainly the most obvious thing is the, is the fact that Once Upon a Time was filmed so early, <laughs> and yet it becomes not only the, um, the prelude and a very suitable prelude to Fallout, but that it's so fitting, even though they were filmed so far apart, mm. and that it would link up so well. Um, in The Prisoner, you have a clear ITC influence sometimes. It does veer away from uh, McGowan's aesthetic, I think, for what the show was about, notably when they keep having what you have affectionately referred to as ITC fisticuffs <laughs> um, in our Prisoner recaps. Yeah, the, the very bloodless punch-ups that seem mm. to happen um, at some point in every ITC action show, you know, complete with very obvious stuntmen standing in for people. <laughs> and it's, you know, it was clearly something that they couldn't get away with to the, to the point where in a couple of episodes it seemed a little bit shoehorned in, yeah. that they had to have some stripy goons turn up and get into a fight with number six as a stunt double for some reason. And, and in the same way with in Twin Peaks, there were certain so popular elements that they couldn't get away from, particularly when they were stacking up cliffhangers <laughs> at the end of a season. I mean, the season one finale is basically wall-to-wall cliffhangers um, in the hope that they were going to get a season two so they could resolve them. I think there are many stories that have been told about the the influence of, of uh, you know network executives on, on Twin Peaks, but there are even really minor things that become part of Twin Peaks lore, such as the fact that the the town um, was originally going to be, I think, 5,120 people. Mm. But then the network felt that it had to be bigger. So I think they just added a one to it, which is why the Twin Peaks sign is, you know, 51,201 people, which doesn't really fit with the number of people that you see in Twin Peaks. Mm. But it was clear that there were external notes that were given by executives that were meant to drive some of the creative decisions. I think thematically, this idea of Twin Peaks still being structured like a soap opera is probably what, um, yeah, you're right, is, is, a, is a big distinction from uh, The Prisoner. I think in season three of Twin Peaks is slightly more structured into thematic hours of the series. And I know people talk about it as a movie and it's an 18-hour movie, but you could argue that each hour does largely capture certain themes mm. um, although it's a continuing story across all 18 hours of, of Twin Peaks and you do have these standout episodes like episode 8 and um, which is um, uh, well it's one you have to see for yourself <laughs> but, but I think episode 8 is now a shorthand form in in talking about television for when a TV show goes completely into its own world and decides <laughs> that it's going to change the way television should be made and even its own premise you know, it's just blown apart for an hour or so. Yes, whereas with The Prisoner, you have some episodes which are heavily themed. I mean, the most obvious one is probably Living in Harmony, which is 85% Western, <laughs> 15% resolution to the Western. There are a lot of different stories behind the creation of that episode and how it came to exist and why they ended up doing a Western episode. And it's very successful in some ways. I, you know, as, as a Western, it's less successful <laughs> in, in other respects. But as an episode of The Prisoner, 
doing a Western because it's with The Prisoner, you always have it in the back of your mind that this isn't just a Western episode, this is a Western happening within the village and everything that is happening within it is filtered through the reality of the village. It's not like you know, an episode of Quantum Leap where he jumps into a cowboy and they go off and do a Western or whatever. You know, it's 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 always a theme that is filtered through the 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 skewed and weird and troubling lens of the village in the first place. And then you have things like um, uh, The Girl Who Was Deaf, which is like a, a fairy tale shaggy dog story episode. And Once Upon a Time, which is largely a two-hander that... Could and indeed I think has been put on in the theatre before. Mm-hmm. And I think one notable thing with The Prisoner that I'm thinking about now is an episode like uh, Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling, which is an episode which is written because McGowan isn't available. Mm. So they have to get um, a whole different episode cobbled together, which doesn't feature um, uh, McGowan as number six, etc. So again, even in that 17 episode run, you have all these distinct ways in which they they tried to, and were sometimes forced to break the mould of what the show was about to adapt to external influences, but also play around with the format and do some interesting things. The interesting thing with that is that that's an episode where Magoon isn't around. He's off filming Ice Station Zebra. The only time that happens in Twin Peaks is probably throughout the making of Fire Walk With Me, when Carl McLaughlin initially didn't want to come back to make the film, uh, thinking that he didn't want to be typecast after the end of season two and thinking that Lynch had walked away from the show and that. But eventually he does come back and he appears in, in sort of the latter third of it. But Twin Peaks is still very much a world where it has this huge cast. So when, you know, the lead isn't around, you can still have other, other storylines and events taking over. That's part of the, the nature of it being this, you know, this soap opera with many different plot strands that mean that if people aren't available from a production perspective, the show can still continue. From the perspective of Cooper in particular as being a character who, ha- who has to be there, the notable thing about season three is that you're spending most of that series waiting for Cooper as a character to return. <laughs> um, although he's physically in the show, mm. you know, it's very much a series about, about Cooper's return as well um, to himself, to Twin Peaks, to reality, to his senses, all, all these different things. And that's kind of a more sort of psychological aspect of what Twin Peaks was about. But you can't imagine the prisoner sustaining itself by ever playing around too much with who number six was. Mm. Number six is number six from beginning to end, I think. I don't think he really changes by the end. He's very much a character who has a belief and he stands up for that belief. And that is the one sort of defining aspect of his character, which is continuous throughout all 17 episodes. Arguably, including Do Not Forsake Me, when he's not even in it for most of it. <laughs> I think in both shows, the strongest episodes... And the most memorable episodes are the ones where the creators were most heavily involved. So in The Prisoner, it's the ones where Magoom is involved, not only in front of the camera, but in terms of writing them, directing them. Firing people behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in episodes like Fallout, where he did absolutely everything um, that was humanly possible for a person to do, on a, on a TV show, he was doing it. And in Twin Peaks, in, in particular, you see the the huge difference it makes when Lynch comes back towards the end of season two, and particularly that season two finale, which is 
possibly the weirdest hour of television since the finale of The Prisoner <laughs> was broadcast. And it could not have happened without without Lynch coming back and getting back involved in the show. Yeah, and you can kind of see that structurally happening in The Prisoner as well, because although they air the episodes out of order, putting you know Once Upon a Time um, as a prelude to Fallout, that sort of second short production block is is really a means to get the show over the line, to get mm-hmm. those 17 episodes. Um, but Fallout is really, I think, McGowan engaging with the show again properly and deciding to put a conclusion on screen that blows the whole series open. Although, as we've said earlier on, I don't think it's there to create any continuation of The Prisoner. It's there to basically say, this is how the story ends in the context of the TV show. And there's a, a, another quote that's interesting from the uh, the Canadian interview that McGowan did, where he's asked about writing that last episode and also specifically writing the reveal of number six and number one being the same in some way, or number one appearing to be number six, and the the, the confusion of what all of that meant. And uh, he's asked when he knew that that was what the answer was going to be, or not that it's much of an answer, but that's what the reveal was going to be. And he said, when it got very close to the last episode and I hadn't written it yet, and I had to sit down this terrible day and write the last episode, and I knew it wasn't going to be something out of James Bond, and in the back of my mind, there was some parallel with the character six and the number one and the rest. And then I didn't even know exactly till I was about a third of the way through the script, the last script. So even right up until the very end, creatively, it was Baguin making these massive decisions, almost having been through the process of creating almost the entire show to determine what the end would be or how the ending would be explained or unexplained to the audience. And it's, it's not a goal that they started out with knowing where they were going to end up. They didn't have some grand plan for X number of seasons and this is how season three will end and how season four will begin and all this stuff that a lot of showrunners seem to do now or are made to do by networks. It was very much at the time, this is what feels right and his creative decision as to what felt right. So he wrote it and then they just went and made it and that was it. (laughs) Yeah, that the idea of of intuitively following where the story should go rather than having it all kind of mapped out at the beginning. Mm. Um, that, that's a really interesting sort of way that, that, that both shows essentially, I think, reach their most notable creative peaks, I think. It's mm. the fact that they're, they're going on their gut rather than trying to think about what they need to do based on what they preconceived a year or, or two prior. And, so, and structurally, there, there's one other point... Um, to make before we close off this section, which is, which is about the fact that both shows, uh, and I only noticed this recently actually, are largely based around a central question, which is never really meant to be answered <laughs> in both of those shows. In the case of of the prisoner, there are kind of two questions. There's what the village is asking, which is why did you resign, and there's also uh, the prisoner's question, which is who is number one. And these are two questions which are the sort of thematic driving force behind what the shows are really trying to get at. And I think only the question of who is number one is is even 
remotely addressed, I think, in Fallout. But they're never meant to be, I think, answered in a, in a very simplistic, conclusive way. They're meant to be slightly open-ended, but you could interpret what the answers to those things might be, I think. The interesting thing about Twin Peaks is I think the central question in, in that show is who killed Laura Palmer? Now, it's been said many times about, you know, the interference from ABC during the production of the second series, but that show is about how that question allows us to enter the world of Twin Peaks. It allows Cooper to find a place in that world and explore everything, but it throws up even more mysteries as the show progresses. But it's very clear, I think Frost and Lynch have spoken about this at length, that you were never meant to find out the answer to that question, who killed Laura Palmer? Mm. That was merely the entrance point into the world. It wasn't meant to be answered in a specific way early on because that was sort of the, the driving force behind it. I think Lynch has said, the minute you do that, you've lost the whole programme and people lose interest. The problem is, American network television dictates that the audience in the late 80s, early 90s are used to a specific thing on television and they want answers. And mm. so they, you know, the first series was great, but the second series, that was enough for them. And they want, and the network wanted Lynch and Frost to reveal that. And there's always this question, what would have happened if they didn't reveal it? Would the show have continued? How would it have you know, con- um, you know, carried on narratively if, if that mystery had kind of been moved to the background as new mysteries came forward? The fact is, they had to reveal who killed Laura Palmer, um, sort of a few episodes into season two. Arguably, that then changes what the show is about. I mean, so, you know, the first half of season two is fantastic. It peaks when they have the reveal. It's great to see, but actually, from a story perspective, you've you've given away, you know, the biggest mystery in the mm. show. I mean, that's the premise, really. Uh, but it's a MacGuffin. It's not meant to. It's not a real thing, really. It's there as an entrance into the world. It's not meant to be addressed specifically. So, in the case of the prisoner, there are these questions driving the show. They don't really get answered, and McGowan clearly resisted giving a formal answer to those questions, allowing the you know the viewer to interpret it. In Twin Peaks, there is a central question which was never meant to be answered, but their hand was forced and they had to reveal it. And ultimately, you could argue that that does severely maim the show as it limps towards the end of its second season, only to have this sort of rebirth in the in the finale and obviously its return in, in season three in 2017. So moving on to discuss the locations for a little bit, because I think there are interesting parallels between the village as a place and Twin Peaks as a place. Both shows in their first episodes involve a lead character going from a city to a small town, which is geographically quite cut off and isolated from everything else. So with the village... You can you can see from that that famous map that they have in Arrival. Mm. You've got the ocean on one side and the mountains on the other. And in Twin Peaks, it's extremely rural near the Canadian border. And both of them are, to a great extent, very eccentric and strange and weird and slightly timeless places, where the place itself becomes a character within. The show, you, you you can't imagine either show being filmed anywhere other than those locations that they had up in Washington State and Port Marion. You know they 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 have infused themselves into the 
aesthetics of the show and, and the way that you feel about the show. Yeah, and I think in the case of Twin Peaks, the fact that Frost wrote it so heavily into uh, the secret history, he's really interested in the fact that it's the location which is the the heart of the mystery. Mm. You know, what's referred to in the TV show as, as, as sort of the darkness in the woods largely can map onto the the strange geographical uh, features that uh, that surround the village as well but arguably you, you've got this this interest in 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 the physical nature of these places where they are what they mean the history of these places which is never really explained which makes them very much identifiable as the village and twin peaks and yet still quite hard to place in the eras in which these shows are being are being made and they both seem slightly out of time with the world in which they're created, but in opposite directions, because in The Prisoner, the village is very technologically advanced for the era in which the show is made. So you've got all these weird sci-fi concepts that are in there, which now don't necessarily seem like science fiction, but at the time you've got you know, video screens and th- inexplicable things like Rover where you can't understand how they work and brainwashing techniques and drugs that enable you to interfere with people's dreams and all these crazy sci-fi concepts that they built into the show where the village has technology that is beyond number six's understanding and beyond the audience's understanding. Whereas with Twin Peaks... From very early on, I think it's Cooper who he's talking to Albert, and he says that Twin Peaks is still a place where life has value yeah. and where people slow down for an amber light instead of speeding up, and that it's it's almost a relic in some way of a, a slightly nostalgic idea of the past, but that it, it has remained that way because it is cut off and isolated whereas the village has this technology because it cuts itself off and develops it without wanting anyone to know what it's doing. Mm. I suppose it's reflected in uh, Liam McKern's line about how he has this vision for the whole world as the village. Mm. They want everything to be like the village whereas Twin Peaks wants to keep the world out Mm. um, and and stay its own way. Um, I I think in terms of the physical locations as well, though, as much as um, you were talking just then about about the technological advances that you have in the village, it just reminds me of the fact that if you go to Port Marion, it's still the village. Yeah, there's something about the fact that the elements of the of the shows that do change the way you interpret the era that they're uh, that they're meant to be based in. The fact is, the physical locations are in both the case of Twin Peaks and The Prisoner places that you can physically go to. Mm. You can go and visit the village. You can go to Port Marion. Fans you know, go on pilgrimages to these places. I mean, we've been a couple of times there. In the US, people go to uh, Snoqualmie um, and, they, and they visit the falls. They visit the hotel, which is the one that doubled for the, uh, for the Great Northern and places. There are all these places that physically you can go and see. They are real places. And that that's what also blurs the line for a show which is so meaningful to so many fans and things. It's the fact you can go to these places and you can immerse yourself in those worlds. And the fact you can go to them now... And yet these are shows that were shot you know, years ago, but it still feels like you're in those worlds, means that there's something about those locations that are able to evoke the feeling of that show, irrespective of whether you're going them in the, through the world of fiction or 
or in reality and you know going there in person and i think the the weather in both shows plays an important part in building the atmosphere of the the programs with twin peaks you've got this this mistiness you've got the vastness of the forests and the mountains compared to the town and you've got you know, some of the most beautiful shots particularly in the return of you know, mist rolling out of the trees that just seem to go on and on and on forever, you know, far beyond where human beings have set foot. And that creates this idea that there is something that is unexplained or something that is best avoided that is out there in the woods. I mean, that is a, a very old, almost kind of fairy tale idea that there's something evil in the woods and if you go in there, you're going to encounter it. But it's an important part of the show. It's part of the law of the town and it's, it's part of the identity of the show that when you think of Twin Peaks, you think of that kind of weather and you, you think of that atmosphere. And with the village, in contrast, you've got these shots of what appear to be an, an idyllic, sunny seaside town where everybody's dressed in brightly coloured clothes and... There's a brass band over on the bandstand and they're all by the sea and everyone seems very happy. And yet there's a, a darkness underneath it all, beneath the face value of this apparent happiness on the surface. There is something deeply disturbing going on underneath. And that's the same thing that you get on Twin Peaks. Yeah, I think Lynch was always very interested in that, that idea that... Uh behind the white picket fences there's there's something going on in small town america something disturbing something unusual something strange and there's a there's a mystery to be solved i think uh, i think it's most defined i think in blue velvet but he's always revisited this theme of, of what happens in in towns and places that have been kept away from sort of the advances of the rest of of the world in some respect they're always timeless areas but they're they're places that keep to themselves but he always tries to look at what the potential sinister underbelly of these places might actually be. And I think what's interesting is you've got, like you say, Cooper going in and he's he's uncovering what the mysteries are in the world of Twin Peaks. That you know it's not it's not just the you know the nice, happy town that I think even the residents would like to portray. Um, the fact is that, you know, a young woman has been murdered there. And the story around that exposes even more secrets as Cooper investigates it. In the case of the village, you've got number six, who is taken there against his will. He immediately knows that something is up, and he is aware that there is no facade to it. It doesn't. It doesn't wash with him. It's not something that he goes and thinks about as maybe there's something. Behind. He knows that there's something fundamentally wrong because he has come from the outside world, and he is viewing it with such suspicion that he's there to dismantle it. Whereas over time, you could almost argue that Cooper in the world of Twin Peaks, are, you know, certainly there's conversations that happen after the murder is solved. He talks about wanting to stay in Twin Peaks and he mm. wants to move there. He is he's moving from from the city to the world of Twin Peaks. He likes he likes the mystery. He likes the strangeness of it. Um, it. It appeals to him. Whereas the sole intention of number six and the prisoner is to get the hell out of the village. He's not there to in, to actually learn any more than he needs to than to you know, do what he says, which is he wants to go and he's going to come back and he's going to destroy the place. I mean, that's you know, all he wants to do is, is know who's behind it, what it's for and where it is. He wants to get out and then he wants to 
yeah, wipe it off the face of the earth. In terms of the the darkness lingering under the facade in Twin Peaks, it makes me think of those earliest episodes of season one where you see Ben Horn trying to sell the idea <laughs> of Twin Peaks and the Ghostwood Estates to first the Norwegians and then the Icelanders as to how, you know, oh, the air up here is so wonderful and it's healthy and it's wholesome. The, the, the moment they find out that uh, a girl from the local school has been murdered, they all leg it out <laughs> of the first opportunity without signing any contracts. But there's this image that's being sold and then there's the reality underneath it. Yeah, but even in these towns, there are still, there's still a lot to do with the actual buildings which exist in these places, mm. which you know, specific places which have become, I think, in the worlds of both the Prisoner and Twin Peaks, quite iconic spaces. You have, you have the Green Dome, you have even Number Six's house. In Twin Peaks, you have the Double R. You have Big Ed's gas farm. You know, you have the high school. Mm. You have the Great Northern. It's it's almost like a a model of 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 what a habitable village should be. But there's something going on underneath, and that's what I think ties both together. The fact that the village has this idea of what the shops are that you need to survive, and what and what makes it appear to conform to well something which is able to be generically referred to as the village because it has the things that a village has and that's exactly what i think number six is resisting whereas it's something which is quite attractive to cooper who's who's coming there to obviously investigate a crime but is staying because he he yearns for that simpler life i think only to understand that it's it's not what he thought it would be i think another interesting connection is that at times both twin peaks and the village are explored thematically as almost sort of purgatorial states that people can't leave. I mean, obviously with the prisoner, the whole concept of it is behind his inability to leave, even though a couple of times he does leave, but he ends up right back where he was again, or thinks he's left, but he hasn't. But it's particularly in Dance of the Dead, where this idea of it being a place of the dead, and of his place in the real world no longer existing is discussed a lot between him and the number two in that episode, played by Mary Morris. The, the way that uh, the body washes up on the beach, the way that the carnival that takes place in that episode has people dressing up as characters from reality, characters from fiction, characters from the present, characters from the past, and yet he's dressing up as himself, mm. almost as if he is now a fiction. You You can kind of see connections between that and between maybe more explicitly towards the end of season three of Twin Peaks, of the fact that Cooper keeps ending up back there again and again and again, but it seems different every time, and it's not what he remembers. Yeah, certainly in in part 18 of, of season three, he's returned to Twin Peaks, he's come back with Laura. There's one question over whether it's still the Twin Peaks in our reality, mm. but I think there's a very specific query more to do with when he's returned so the fact is it's everything becomes fluid twin peaks itself exists um, but he's able to visit it through sort of various uh, means in time and space he can be in an alternate version of twin peaks he could be in the twin peaks he was used to but but at a different time potentially before he originally even went to twin peaks in the first place in the sort of the prime timeline um, there's something otherworldly about the fact that he is kind of stuck 
um, continually linked to Twin Peaks, even though his relationship to it sort of moves beyond sort of the physical constraints of um, of what we consider time and space. And indeed, when he's rescuing Laura, that whole sequence in Part Seventeen is Orpheus in the Underworld. Mm. There's a lot to be said about how the idea of purgatory is crystallized both in in the finale of, of season three and also very explicitly in the context of uh, a fallout as well. Mm. Um, certainly with its religious connotations which creep in as well. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're both linked by characters constantly ending up back where they started. <laughs> you know, in The Prisoner, there's occasions where he thinks he's got out in, in Chimes with Big Ben, but he has never really left the village at all. Or in Many Happy Returns, where he he does get out, but ends up being returned to the village and the whole thing was being manipulated <laughs> from the start. He was never really free. And then right at the end of Fallout, when you see him going back home and the electric door shuts, and even though he's not in the village anymore, he still is in the village in his mind because mm. the village is within him and within everyone. And this is something that McGoon has spoken about, about the fact that is he really free mm. at the end or is the village always going to be with him? And then in Twin Peaks, you have Cooper who, you know, in one respect spends 25 years in the Red Room, not leaving, which itself could be considered a, a purgatorial space. But even when he leaves, gets drawn back to Twin Peaks by the events that are happening there, goes back in time, but he's still in Twin Peaks, travels to another dimension, but ends up back in Twin Peaks. And the whole thing is just looping back on itself. He's now stuck in this cycle that he can't escape and it's all centered around Twin Peaks as a location. So the next thing we we wanted to talk about was the aesthetics and the iconography that exists in both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks. It's fair to say that both shows have a very distinctive look (laughs) and style. How do you think that fits with the era in which they were actually made? Visually, they are very much the late 60s and the early 90s. And yet, I think both of them are warped in their own ways. And it's, you know, as we were talking about earlier, with there being, you know, a heavy element of nostalgia in Twin Peaks, of a a nostalgia for an idealised past. And so, visually, it has essences of the 1950s in it in terms of the the clothes some of the music whereas with the prisoner although visually it is 1960s the way everything is so heavily stylized and and weirdly futuristic you know it's, it's easy it's easy to look at some of the tech now and think it looks retro but at the time it was revolutionary and the fact that it wasn't just visually reminiscent of the era in which it was made, but that there, is, there are more layers to it. It's part of the reason why it's still so interesting to watch. You know, that translates not just from the props and the, and the styles that you see in, uh, in both shows, but also a major aspect that you've kind of touched upon already is, is the clothing. Mm. In the case of styles generally, yeah, the whole of each cast is, is defined by kind of uniform that adheres to what their shows are about. But taking specifically number six and Cooper. I mean, those are two characters who are defined very much by 
clothing that they wear, mm. which arguably becomes to an extent a costume for them. Mm. Um, it's a defining aspect of their character, but one that, much as they feel it's it's something that that defines them, it's something that, um, in the case of the prisoner, certainly the village defines him as as well. Mm. Um, it's notable that when they they want to uh, remove him from external society, they burn his old clothes. <laughs> when he fall out, even when he sees the sort of mannequin version of himself, it's wearing uh, the clothes he wore when he came to the village in the first instance. Mm. Um, throughout the show itself, he has his very iconic blazer with the with the white piping. Um, he has he has the blue sort of boater shoes, khaki trousers, and all that. But that's his look the whole time. Everyone else in the village, they fit just generally into a village aesthetic, but they're not defined by any particular uh, costume in the same way that number six is. He, he's the only person who's, who is locked onto his costume throughout the whole series as well. In the same way, you have Cooper, who is most iconically, you know, the FBI agent with the, with the slick hair, the black suit, the FBI pin, well, whenever it's meant to be there. <laughs> um, but they are very much characters who, who carry their costume with them. Yeah, and to the extent that when in season two, Cooper gets suspended, yeah. not only does he turn in his badge, but he also uh, changes into uh, civilian clothing <laughs> and starts bumming around in a flannel shirt. Looking <laughs> it's, it's very odd to see his character in a different outfit, and it looks even more like he's wearing a costume. Yeah. Like, like he's wearing, suddenly wearing a costume as someone that He's not, or someone that he's trying to be, because his identity is gone, because his badge has been taken away, which is actually quite ironic, because it's the badge that Number Six is rejecting throughout his mm. entire time in the village, that he refuses to be defined by it, even in um, Living in Harmony, where he turns in his sheriff's badge, yeah. but in Twin Peaks, it's it's the FBI badge that seems to define Cooper as a person. And when he loses it and gets deputised by Truman and gets another badge back again, he's so chuffed about it mm. because that is part of what defines him. Yeah, so Cooper kind of needs those aspects to to define himself, whereas Six shies away from anything from a accessories or clothing perspective <laughs> that does make him sort of that reduced to a specific number, for example. He, you know, he's rejecting that idea of, of being defined by any kind of societal norms. He, you know, who he is is who he is inside. It's not necessarily um, instilled upon him by having a specific number. Um, and being number six, I think, is the it, it goes against his concept that, you know, as he says repeatedly, his life is his own. Um, and yet, arguably, when he's in the village, he is he is tied to to that costume the whole time, which is his blazer, etc. Um, or occasionally his his seaworthy outfits that he occasionally gets into as well. Um, but he's always that same character, uh, living in harmony. It's weird when he sort of transforms into, into the cowboy. Mm. Um, but he's still very much, like you say, uh, number six, because he has that defining characteristic of, of rejecting his badge. Mm. You know, I was thinking, in, in terms of Cooper's suit, which goes so much towards visually defining him as a character... And, and the way it seems so odd in season three as Dougie when he's wearing the lime green <laughs> blazer and everything and and how different he seems just changing into his uh, black FBI suit. And yet if you know if you were going to a Halloween party or something as Cooper, 
literally all you would need would be a dark suit and a dictaphone <laughs> and everyone would know who you were. And there aren't that many characters where literally just ordinary clothes and a single prop immediately identify who the character is. I mean, I'm a proper 90s girl and there, there was many a Halloween party in the 90s where I had the easiest costume in the world of wearing a, like a dark suit and a long black coat and carrying a torch. <laughs> and that was it. I was Agent Scully and it was really easy. <laughs> but everybody would recognise that because it was, it was a, a defining pop culture thing of the era. And I think in the, in the same way with number six, in some ways the prop is the badge because you could wear his outfit and people might recognise you, but you put that badge on and everyone immediately knows who that character is and, and what defines them. Yeah, and extending that, I mean, I think these these shows have just used that aesthetic to to permeate popular culture. There are things which are so ingrained in, in the world now which are linked inexplicably to those two shows. Um, and they're sort of part of the pop culture lexicon. You have images and ideas, you have Rover, you have the penny farthing. Uh, in Twin Peaks, you have the owls, you have coffee, you have pie. Mm. Um, I suppose strangely in both of them, the one thing I realised is is the interest that both shows have in telephones as mm-hmm. like as not just props, but like sort of quite artistic objects as well. Yeah. Um, I know Lynch always likes a good a good phone, often a red <laughs> phone as well. Um, but in in the Prisoner, they feature all the time, but they're often often slightly different. They have this sort of nice, what we consider now, this kind of 60s retro appeal to them. But the phones themselves are quite iconic as well. Yeah, and I think both shows have gifted certain phrases into the cultural canon, if you like. Um, I mean, with The Prisoner, you've got the two iconic things. One is be seeing you, and the other is I am not a number, I am a free man which is a phrase that has been used as a reference to The Prisoner in so many other TV shows. It's become not just about The Prisoner, but it's become about a concept, about a philosophy, about you know a rejection of authority. It's, it's taken on a life of its own, but it's been used by so many people who have all been influenced by The Prisoner as a TV show. And there's, there's such a wide variety of shows that have referenced it that always amazes me, including so many cartoons for some <laughs> reason. And in Twin Peaks, you've got classic phrases like the owls are not what they seem, or let's rock, or from the most recent series, got a light, which is now just an incredibly sinister thing to mm. say if uh, if you've watched that episode. Yeah, I think that in, you know, overall, I think that you know, that as these shows had, it was as much as they remembered for the actual programmes that they were and the concepts, the stories the characters, it's that sense that they they develop in-world aesthetic that has permeated pop culture completely. Um, and I think in that, it's kind of linked to the fact that it's, that the creators of both shows were aiming to do something unique as well. They were trying to create something novel. And I think some of the novelty comes from a distinctive look that the show has to have as well, a distinctive feel, the fact you can't place it in time or, or geography. So both Twin Peaks, The Prisoner, they are really TV shows as an art form. And I think that's rooted in the fact that Lynch, as we've said, was a filmmaker going to TV and bringing that sensibility to him. On the other hand, you have uh, McGowan, who has a real grasp, I think, of 
how you could exploit television to tell really interesting stories, uh, but also to couple it to the cinematic potential of the concept, not to be restrained by what TV was doing at the time. And even for a 60s show to, to have the foresight to make it timeless enough by you know, shooting it on film and in colour, mm. which has meant that obviously now we're gifted by the most magnificent Blu-ray version of The Prisoner that you can you can ever imagine seeing. It's probably better now than it than it ever was to look at. Mm. Um, and that's what really holds up. I think both shows are helped hugely by having fantastic soundtracks, including probably two of the great pieces of theme music <laughs> in the whole of TV history. One thing that stimulated our interest in doing this particular podcast episode was largely to do with our most recent rewatch of Twin Peaks, coupled to the fact that we'd spent a year analysing The Prisoner in depth and making notes on all the episodes. And I think you start to see a lot of parallels that exist between characters, events, moments, aesthetics, music, all kinds of different things. You know, even the simplest phrase can evoke uh, one show from the other. And you start to see all these links. And I don't think that we're saying that these are explicitly direct homages from one show to the next. But I think it's very clear that when you look really hard at these shows, you can start to see some quite tantalising, I think coincidences, but, but things that are appealing to to viewers of both shows, especially shows which tend to capture viewers who who have that eye for detail and that urge to try and sometimes connect the dots, which is something that the creators of both Twin Peaks and The Prisoner probably like to see viewers do, but don't ever offer any of their own personal perspective on for fear it kind of interferes with, <laughs> with the viewer's experience. So what we did is we actually went back through a lot of our notes from our previous uh, Prisoner episodes and and we'd always been in the margins making notes about how this bit sort of reminds us of this bit from Twin Peaks, for example, and, and, you know, and vice versa with our cherry pie and coffee episodes. So we collated a lot of the different things that we thought were kind of interesting sections. And I think some of you might find this really, really boring to listen to. <laughs> um, you'll find it almost certainly uh, very tenuous and a complete stretch. <laughs> but I think it was just kind of fun to put together this list, all the different things that we thought were interesting links no matter how tangential between both Twin Peaks and The Prisoner. Starting at the very beginning in uh, Prisoner Arrival, one of the most wonderful sequences in that episode is number six kind of stalking around his new digs, getting increasingly fed up with the fact that the radio won't stop playing music mm -hmm. and he can't seem to get it to shut up. He tries putting it in the fridge, eventually he just smashes it to pieces because he's sick of this music playing or another way of putting it is there's always music in the air <laughs> which is a you know a very famous quote from a little man from another place in twin peaks which becomes a clue that cooper picks up on when he's investigating laura's murder and another sort of iconic thing that appears in both shows is the use of chess and particularly the use of chess as a game but as a game with people so in The Prisoner, you have the famous episode Checkmate where you've got one of the most famous visuals of the whole show of the people as the chess pieces out on the lawn in the village, in the sunshine, playing this game of human chess. 
and then the episode itself becomes like a game of human chess as number six attempts to bring enough people together to form an escape attempt from the village. And of course in Twin Peaks, chess comes to the fore in season two when Wyndham Earl turns up and he's literally playing a deadly game of chess with human beings in his attempts to goad Cooper into uh, engaging with him. But you also have things like, you know, just, just number six, the number uh, that comes up again and again. So, you know, Lynch is obviously a very famous numerologist. He, he likes his numbers. He likes putting them into, into his uh, film and television. But it's really interesting that obviously six is the main character in The Prisoner, but, but number six is the number of the, the infamous, quite sinister telegraph pole, which appears throughout Twin Peaks mythology. And it's potentially a marker for uh, sort of the eye of, of Judy looking out over events uh, which are happening the whole time. Yes, the, the amazing, apparently teleporting telegraph pole, which can be in uh, in Oregon and Washington State and Texas all at the same time. A very common thing is is the use of doppelgangers in both shows. Mm. In The Prisoner, you have an episode, The Schizoid Man, which is about doppelgangers. You have Fallout featuring his mannequin, which is dressed like him. You have this constant sense of who he's facing off against until eventually he meets he meets number one. We'll come to that in a second. Um, but the whole thing about Twin Peaks is about duality. I know it's been said many, many times, but it's specifically about people facing their shadow selves. It's about characters who appear, often the same person playing you know, two characters. So you have uh, Laura and Maddie, who are cousins, uh, Laura being murdered before the series starts, Maddie coming to Twin Peaks in response to her cousin's murder, ultimately both of them being killed um, by Leland under the possession of Bob. But it's the fact that you have characters who are in the real world as well, facing their uh, their doppelgangers. And in the season two finale of Twin Peaks, that whole episode is built around Cooper facing off against his shadow self in the Red Room, which is played out as as one of the most remarkable sequences on television, where he's ultimately split into two you have the good cooper and the bad cooper and that's a storyline which is wrapped up um, to some extent 25 years later in season three but in the prisoner the show was always about six's identity being one it was it was always part of him and the way they try to break him is is to have him face off against a mirror image of himself in the schizoid man and him ultimately start to get confused over who he himself is and having to sort of uh, disentangle these two identities who are presented to him because he's not really sure who he is anymore, but ultimately using uh, his wits to work out who he is and that the other person is a double who's being created by the village. And indeed, doubles just feature all over the place in the village. You have, you have the newspaper people who run mm. the tally-ho, not us, um, <laughs> you know, who have similar numbers and doubles just appear absolutely everywhere in both shows. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting that in The Schizoid Man, the way that he eventually breaks this brainwashing, mm. this, this confusion about who he is, is number six deliberately electrocutes himself. Mm. Um, and this wakes him up and he understands who he is again, which is exactly how Coop wakes himself up from within the life of Dougie after getting that prompt off the TV of, get me Gordon Cole on the phone. And he sticks a fork in a socket um, and electrocutes himself. And th- those two scenes are kind of very beautifully played out if you watch them together. I think that's one of the few sequences in Twin Peaks that I'm I really think that is a real homage to what happens in the Schizoid Man. It could just be a coincidence. I think there are lots of coincidences in both shows, but I think that's one of the complete sequences that involves somebody sort of snapping out of another identity. 
and Coming Too, which I think is it's almost too close to be complete coincidence between two shows. I think I think given Mark Frost's love of the prisoner, I think that's one of those those sequences that you can imagine him sort of dropping into the new season as an homage to the prisoner. Mm. Funny that two of the most iconic things one from each show about the two shows. So in the prisoner, the existence of Rover and and the way that Rover is done, and then in, in Twin Peaks, the whole concept of Bob as a character and an entity both come from unintentional mistakes <laughs> that were made. So in The Prisoner, the original rover looked like a sort of giant inflatable blancmange put on top of the skeleton of a go-kart, the blue flashing light on top. There's some wonderful behind-the-scenes footage on YouTube you can see, and you can see just how awful it looked. Thank God it didn't work because they scrapped it, I, th I think, within a day of it being on <laughs> set because the idea was someone was meant to be in it driving it, but they couldn't see where they were going. The whole thing was completely unworkable. And famously, uh, I think it was the production manager, Bernard Williams, who saw a meteorological balloon in the sky. It gave rise to the idea of Rover being this giant balloon. So they got a whole ton of balloons and experimented with it to see how they could make it work. And when he was asked about it, um, and asked about how you know these mistakes, not, not mistakes, but the, these spur-of-the-moment things that are inspired by what were at first mistakes come to be so important. And uh, when asked about it, McGinn said, they come because you're looking for them. I was fortunate to have two or three creative people working with me, like my friend that I said saw the meteorological balloon, and wherever one could find these little touches, one put them in. So that idea of being open to taking these things that happen and, and run with them creatively is something that is common to both of them and I think that's also common with the way that Lynch operates and particularly the way that he took the idea of Bob and ran with it. Yeah yeah because in the original pilot they have that sequence where you see the reflection of, of Bob faintly in the mirror when Sarah screams that's because was he a props guy or something? It was a set dresser. It was a set dresser yeah. and he was sort of crouching down but he was kind of in shot reflecting the mirror and I think you know, seeing that on film is what spurred Lynch to suddenly go, leave that in, because that's essentially the, the haunting spirit of a character who's going to become somebody who plays a huge role in the mythology of the show. And again, it was just because some guy was caught accidentally on screen and Frank Silver then gives birth to one of the, the greatest TV villains or even film villains of all time <laughs> in the form of the spirit Bob. And it's the kind of thing that Lynch has referred to as happy accidents um, when he was asked about this whole thing about Frank Silver being caught in the shot and becoming Bob. And he said, it's the number one happiest accident, maybe. I feel so good about happy accidents. And another way of saying it is, stay on your guard because you don't know what will trigger an idea. Even if your script is complete and you start shooting, somewhere along the line it's possible through a happy accident or overhearing somebody saying something or tripping and falling and seeing something. You didn't know an idea can come in. It changes everything. You say, this is so beautiful. Why isn't this part of the script to begin with? Look how fantastic it is. <laughs> it's the fact that both showrunners essentially were, were open to sort of seeing what would take place. I mean, uh, having a structure to what you want to film is, is great, but knowing that something might happen that changes the direction of that, being open to that is something that I think both uh, McGowan and Lynch were particularly um, keen to use when it came about in both shows. It can be a technical thing that goes wrong. It could be you know, all kinds of things. But 
they might end up as nothing. They might just end up as funny little scenes where they're just part of the lore of those shows, but they could ultimately become something much, much bigger. Like you say, Rover is now the Rover we know him as now. Any other form, not only would we probably not remember it as well, it would have probably dated the show quite a lot. Yeah. And, and would it have been something that would have been a weak link in how we remember how good the prisoner was mm. if it was always let down by this blancmange on a go-kart thing driving <laughs> around. And another very tenuous connection driven by the way that Rover operated is in order to get some of the shots done, they had to shoot them pulling Rover in one direction and then reverse the footage so that it appeared that Rover <laughs> was moving forwards. And as a result of this, there are a few shots where if you look closely in the background, you will see time moving backwards, smoke going into chimneys instead mm. of out of it. And although it's not intentional, it is eerily reminiscent sometimes of things that happen you know, in the Red Room, things happening backwards. Of course, both shows at some point feature a body washing up on a beach. Yeah. Um, in the pilot between Peaks, but also in Dance of the Dead, it plays an important plot point in the episode. Yeah. And there's a lot to do with nuclear fears as well. Mm. I know Alex Cox goes on a lot about it in his book about who number six might actually have been in the real world. But it's clear that Fallout, from its title through to the concepts in it, is very much playing on, on nuclear fears. I think the same thing is, is rooted in part eight of Twin Peaks we referenced earlier. That is basically about the birth of evil and how it was triggered by the atomic bomb. It's the fact that evil can be man-made um, or it can be birthed or, the, or the, the route that evil has into the world can be through the actions of people. And in both cases, I think there's this fear about the outcome of a, of a nuclear event that is rooted in the nature of evil as well. Both shows have some spooky sequences that involve people being on screens in the background of a scene in which they are in but not on the screen mm. if that makes sense so i mean a b and c is probably the most famous example of the prisoner where his dream is being projected up onto a big screen that they're watching but then towards the end of the third dream of course he's turned the dream upon number two and number two himself is appearing on the screen in the dream and unable to figure out how number six is doing this, mm. or how number six has tricked him. And the whole thing happens again in, in Fire Walk With Me, because you have Cooper doing that test where he's walking down the corridor, running to the guy who's running the CCTV, and he's, he's trying to see if he can capture sort of an afterimage of himself on that screen when he comes and, and sees it happening. But then also when he's watching that screen, he sees the appearance of Philip Jeffries as well. Mm. Um, it's a fact that a lot of the first elements of, of Twin Peaks that really show that you're in the real world of the Philadelphia office, but you're experiencing something slightly strange, eerie and, and occult in some way, is the fact that it's done through technology. You know, you're seeing something abnormal on screen. And screens are things where you, you get information, you expect these things to tell you the truth. And so therefore, when something weird happens, I think the fact that people rely on them and question what they're seeing a little bit is what is so disorientating as well. And in Fallout, there's that moment where he's approaching number one and number one is watching a screen and the screen is showing a different angle hmm. of number six approaching. And number one is watching it in the same way that we are watching number six approaching number one from another angle on our own screens. There's so much about people watching images of themselves hmm. that is ultimately connected with the fact that they're both television shows in which we are just watching images of all of this happening. Yeah, and... Uh, and when you say sort of characters are you know are looking at themselves, there's a lot that happens in terms of reflections. You know, characters who look in the mirror and 
see some aspect of themselves or indeed a warped aspect of themselves. Mm. Um, in the schizoid man, when Six first wakes up, and he looks in the mirror and he, and he sees he has his moustache and things like that. Mm. It's very rare that you get shows where you have a single character who is looking at themselves and sort of learning about themselves in some strange way as well. In Twin Beach, you have even more reflections happening, some of which are really strange and I have no explanation from them. But there's, <laughs> but there's uh, one of the episodes, I think, in the latter half of, of season three, which has you know a scene that plays over the credits where you see Big Ed eating soup, and you see that moment where he sees his reflection, and it's it's altered from what he's actually doing when he's looking um, out at night. It's not necessarily meant to be something that's actually happening. It's more about his state of mind, I mm. think. But he's lost in himself, eating his you know eating his dinner, and he sees something different in in the reflection of himself, which I think is kind of weird. I think there are two connected moments of Cooper looking at himself in a mirror, one from the season two finale, where he, not him, his doppelganger has escaped mm. from the Black Lodge and he looks in the mirror and Bob is reflected back at him. But then again in season three, I think it's part four, where he's living life as Dougie mm. and he stares at himself in the mirror in the same way, as if he's trying to figure out who he is. Mm. And of course you have Mr C, who's, who's not shocked, but he, he looks in the mirror and he sees Bob looking back at him. So there's an element in Twin Peaks of being able to look into yourself and see what's actually inside. It's not, he sees the inhabiting spirit, Bob, looking back at him. And both shows feature quite startling moments of rooms suddenly changing from what they were a moment hmm. ago. So in season three of Twin Peaks, for example, you've got that whole sequence by the Purple Sea where Cooper is in the room with Nido and they climb up onto the top of this structure in the middle of space. <laughs> And when he goes back down, the room is different and the American girl is there. And in The Prisoner, I think it's Arrival, isn't it? Where he's being shown around the facilities, particularly the hospital facilities in the village. He looks through a round window into a corridor and the corridor is lit up completely purple. And it's lined with people sitting down on the floor on either side, wearing headphones and just moving their feet back and forth as if doing some strange exercise. And then if a short while later, just a couple of minutes later, he looks through the same window into the same room and it's a completely different corridor and the only person in it at the far end is a man who appears to be singing to a levitating egg. <laughs> <laughs> Which could have ultimately happened in, in Twin Peaks and not been out of place. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but speaking of things where something changes when you sort of do a double take... In both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks, you see that in the context of characters who appear in unexpected places and who also sort of change their identities as well, and mm. characters. In the case of uh, The Prisoner, you have, well, number six eventually in uh, Many Happy Returns returning to London. And he goes to his old house and somebody else is living there. It's Mrs. Butterworth, who ultimately is revealed as, as the number two. I think that's a really interesting contrast to what happens at the end of season three of Twin Peaks because you have Cooper and Laura going back to the Palmer house in order to see who's there. But the person who is there is is not Sarah Palmer, as they expect and as Cooper hopes. It's a woman who, um, well, in a, in a strange sort of meta, meta universe, is actually the real owner of the house. But she claims her name is Alice Tremont, and she bought the house from uh, a Mrs. Chalfont. In the world of Twin Peaks, that means even more, because those two names in Fire Walk With Me are critical to the events that happen at the trailer park mm. because you have 
the Chalfonts who occupy one of the trailers in the Fat Trout trailer park, but also appear to have a house which receives Meals on Wheels in Twin Peaks, the series. There's this whole thing about names being reused, identities being switched. Um, certainly that's a, a theme that runs heavily through uh, you know, Lynch's work in things like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, where you know the same face can have different identities, and indeed different identities can have the same face. I think if you take Fallout as an episode on its own, that is as surreal as anything that happens in Twin Peaks. The fact that the main character, number six, spends a lot of that episode just sitting in a chair watching stuff happen <laughs> around him. The fact that he doesn't say very much in that episode is kind of similar to the state in which Cooper seems to exist in the Red Room, where he spends an awful lot of time apparently sitting in a chair with strange things happening around him, but he doesn't say very much himself. Yeah, all of a sudden you've moved out of the world of the village into another level of, of strangeness that's within that, almost like you know the world of the Red Room being a place which is actually linked to a, a location called the Black Lodge. So it's a physical place, albeit an interdimensional kind of physical place, in the same way that there's a place within the village that no one knew about before, mm. which is where the events of Fallout uh, take place. But then going back to Fallout, I think the obvious thing is the conclusion of the reveal of who number one is. You have number six finding the masked figure in, in the control room. He goes up to him and he sees he's wearing one of the masks that all the other people in the court are all wearing as well. As he removes it, uh, underneath uh, is revealed uh, the face of, a, of an ape, which is laughing right back at him. And as number six sort of recoils and is both confused and disgusted at what he sees, he pulls it off again and reveals that underneath that is his own face. There's two things there. I mean, one is this idea that he finally sees that his ultimate captor is himself. And there's this evil within, within himself, which is reflected right back at him. So the one thing he was searching for is his ultimate antagonist was already there the whole time. The other is that it's the use of the monkey underneath the mask. And that's something which um, is a very iconic scene from Fire Walk With Me, where you have, again, it's one of the Tremons. It's, it's, um, it's Pierre, the young boy, I think it is, um, who's wearing the strange white mask, which is worn by uh, the Jumping Man in other parts of the series. And he takes off that mask at one point to reveal a monkey underneath. At the very end of the film, I believe, isn't it? And, uh, and the monkey simply whispers Judy, which is kind of the ultimate, the ultimate mystery, um, which is behind uh, Twin Peaks, as we find out in season three. It's the fact that you use the shot of the monkey um, or an ape as, as some kind of reflection of, of what we're ultimately searching for, which is always hidden behind a mask as well. Um, although in the case of the prisoner, they take it a step further by, by showing what's underneath that face as well. Yes, and that reveal of number six's own face underneath the ape mask goes back to this idea of the most dangerous thing being within yourself mm. or being some kind of unseen, unrecognised force within yourself. And both shows, to an extent, end back in a loop where they began. Um, with The Prisoner, it ends literally with the very first shot of him driving down the runway. And in fact, McGuin said of it, there's no final conclusion to it I was very fortunate to be able to do something as audacious as that with no final conclusion to it because people do want the word the end put up there. <laughs> now, the final two words for that thing should have been the beginning. So everything ends up back where it began. And to an extent, that's true of what happens in Twin Peaks as well. If you take the end of season three to be the end of Twin Peaks, where the final shot is back in the Red Room and is ultimately a, a recreation of a shot from episode three of 
the very first series when Cooper first has the dream in which he's in the Red Room and Laura whispers to him. So, I mean, that's by no means an exhaustive list, but I think it's just a way that we've been thinking about how some of these connections exist, both in terms of the behind the scenes sides of things, the concepts behind the shows and things that may be maybe sometimes a little bit more than a coincidence that we'd love to speculate are are real ways in which uh, you can draw a line from what was being done as a radical TV show in the context of The Prisoner to something which was equally radical in the world of Twin Peaks. So let's kind of talk a little bit about the reception that both those shows had and maybe expand a little bit into what the legacy of both shows was for future television, film, media, etc. Yes, as we mentioned earlier, both of them created a lot of buzz when they began because both of them were examples of someone who's very well known working on a brand new TV show. Nobody knew a lot about it and there was a, a huge amount of interest before it began. And they both had a big impact on audiences when they started. They both created a tremendous amount of conversation with people who were watching them. Yeah, I think I think you can argue that both shows, whether The Prisoner obviously ended, uh, Twin Peaks was cancelled at the end of season two, uh, both shows have, have generated a huge amount of notoriety, stimulated from you know the minute those episodes aired originally, where those finales raised a lot more questions than they answered but they became very definitive ways of how you how you might want to choose to end a story and do it in a very brave way that is not the the closed off ending that was probably expected of a show which has you know got a central mystery that needs to be resolved for example the anticipation around the final episode was I think traditionally around the resolution that you would see. And I think both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks just don't provide that intentionally. They are actually endings to those shows, but they're just not the conventional endings that a normal TV audience of the era would probably have expected. But that only made the shows, I think, even more popular. Yeah, because I think no matter how many decades have passed, you still have audiences and critics trying to figure them out. And to a certain extent, I think particularly with Twin Peaks, it's become a byword for something that is unanswerable. But I don't think a lot of people would actually want an answer to what it means because it would take away the power of the show, which is to bring yourself to it and to bring your own meaning to it. And I think you can bring your own meaning to the very best episodes of The Prisoner as well. And I think the success of both shows is that they didn't, treat their audiences as fools. So I think, all, although I think they they know that these final episodes are going to confound the audience, they know that the audience are going to lap it up. And they know that the audience are not going to, although they might be frustrated and they might be upset by the ending, they will still get something out of it. And they rely on the fact that the, the audience invests in these programs in maybe the way that the audience doesn't invest as much or realise they've invested as much um, with other shows. Because it's basically saying, if you're still watching the show, you know that we don't adhere to a formula and we don't have um, a specific way of doing things. So why do you think we're going to do anything you know, different in our final episode? And given it is our final episode, why do you not expect us to completely go off the rails and do something really out there as well? If The Prisoner had had a closed ending, would we still be talking about it today? 
you know, if Twin Peaks had a close ending at the end of season two, would it have ever come back to such a claim in 2017? I think both shows often get slightly dismissively referred to as cult shows hmm. because they have a, a dedicated fan base that, you know, for a long period kept those shows alive, particularly in a, you know, a pre-internet age when you needed people to, to connect to one another in other ways and, and keep the interest in the show going. But I would question whether there are any shows that are still watched after half a century, which you would not in some way describe as a cult show, because it's another way of just talking about a show which still has interest in it. Mm. Although the term cult show is often used in a slightly denigrating way, it's actually just a show that people care about, Mm. and there's a reason why people care about it. Yeah, and I think Lynch and Frost and Patrick McGowan, they really wanted to keep the audience wanting more. They provided an ending, which is some element of closure, but it's it's designed to fuel interest in that in that world. And I like the fact that McGowan and Lynch and Frost all gave interviews after the shows have ended, where they basically fueled the mystery around these finales. <laughs> by being deliberately obscure or making strange statements about what they what their thoughts on the finale might be, but never giving an interpretation, but just talking about the shows as experiences rather than closed narratives. I think deep down there's something playful about the creators liking the fact that the shows have triggered that response in people. Mm. I think they feel that's what TV should should do. Catharsis is is not necessarily about feeling that you've reached a satisfying conclusion. It's about potentially feeling that you've reached the ending that's suitable for that particular world, and that ending itself may be open to a multitude of interpretations. The creators deliberately throw everything they can out there and leave everything in the hands of the viewers. And it's remarkable how they've managed to do that for such a sustained period of time after the shows have actually ended. It's not like when they came back for Twin Peaks season three, it was a, this is an explanation of what happened in, in Twin Peaks. It's very much like, well, season three especially is, is the most anti-nostalgia thing I've seen in a long time. <laughs> it specifically plays with that idea about what you might expect, but takes it in an even more sort of groundbreaking direction. And it's interesting that both shows, as well as having a cult fan base, if you like, they both have a tremendous amount of academic interest in them. Because I think there's a recognition that they were both culturally very important and artistically very important in the influence they had not necessarily on the way you know all television became afterwards but particularly on certain other artists and filmmakers and writers who were inspired by them and they had a a much bigger impact than their sort of cult status might suggest and to close just this one section i thought it'd be kind of fun to read this um this section of an article, I think from the LA Times, that was from around the time when I think Twin Peaks was finishing up its second season, addressing a point which people have pondered on you know, in the years to come that we covered in our you know, 10 Reasons Why People Who Like Twin Peaks Should Watch The Prison, which is basically, although Twin Peaks was huge, a lot of people who had been watching television for a lot longer, um, I think although the Twin Peaks demographic was, was relatively young and wouldn't have been around in sort of, you know, the late 60s to watch The Prisoner, a lot of people were suggesting that The Prisoner was equally groundbreaking but back in the 60s. And it was a kind of show that people who watch Twin Peaks might also engage with. So here's a quote from that. There's joy in not knowing. Devotees of ABC's cryptic Twin Peaks affirmed that last season. 
treasuring its hairpin curves, blind alleys, and often incomprehensible stories that left them in a state of exquisite bewilderment. Yet this was hardly the first truly baffling series to air on American television. In the summers of 1968 and 69, for example, CBS aired a brainy and creative British serial that, whilst easier to track than Twin Peaks, was the primetime enigma of its era. And that's from an article by Howard Rosenberg in I think, the LA Times from 1991. And actually, to preface the extended life that the prisoner now has in, in, in popular culture, he also quite presently writes, it never caught on widely in its earlier life. Perhaps American viewers weren't ready for it, or American television wasn't ready to give it the extended opportunity it deserved. Having gone through a lot of the thematic links that exist between The Prisoner and, and Twin Peaks, I think it's also important to realise that they are both really influential TV shows. But also there is a unique thing from a, from a time perspective in that The Prisoner, I think, directly influenced Mark Frost. Mm. Um, so there is a, you know, a real link between The Prisoner and Twin Peaks itself, in addition to the fact that both shows went on to uh, inspire other creatives, often in, in the world of TV and film. So there have been references and homages to The Prisoner in a lot of TV and film in the 50 years since it's been on, mm. but I think particularly in the last sort of 25 years, where people who watched it when they were younger and then went into the creative industries have held on to it as a particular creative touchstone that they wanted to come back to and has had an influence on their creative life. You can kind of trawl through lots of interviews with major TV showrunners, often in American TV series, but I think that's largely because they don't really have the extent of interviews I think, with British TV makers, I think, from that same era. But America was producing so much uh, genre television, but you've got people like uh, Chris Carter and John Scheiban who worked on uh, The X-Files, J.J. Abrams, Damon Lindelof, who went on to, you know, who started off with things like Alias, Lost, The Leftovers, Fringe, and obviously J.J. Abrams went on to make loads and loads of uh, genre movies as well. Uh, they've all spoken about about the influence that, that The Prisoner had on uh, not only their own work, but sort of how they approached uh, storytelling and writing. Um, and they often cite The Prisoner as one of the, you know, you know, the great TV shows uh, that they remember watching that has stuck with them. It's one very recent one. In fact, it's extremely recent. Mm. It was last month. Peter Gould, who is the creator and showrunner of Better Call Saul, which is the prequel to Breaking Bad, was talking about an episode of Better Call Saul that aired just a few weeks ago, where a character called Mike wakes up in a village in Mexico, and he's been transported there uh, without his knowledge. And at first, he's completely disoriented. He doesn't know anybody there. Is it all sounding very familiar? <laughs> and Peter Gould was talking about this on a podcast. It's the Better Call Saul Insider podcast. And he said, The other thing I think was influencing me personally was the old Patrick McGowan show, The Prisoner, which is always going to be one of my touchstones personally. Little aspects of that keep popping up on the show. In this case, Mike, is he trapped there? Not really, except by his wounds. We were certainly thinking about that. I was too. And then Giancarlo Esposito, who plays Gus Fring, who is the uh, reason Mike was uh, transported to Mexico, said, I love the prisoner analogy. One of my favourite shows growing up and really allows you inside someone's interior. <laughs> and even that episode of, of Better Call Saul, uh, which is yeah, halfway through the recent series five, 
that same plot is also seen in that episode of the X-Files where Doggett wakes up in a Mexican village as well. And he's <laughs> yeah. not sure where he is. Um, so you get these kind of things happening in lots of other TV shows as well. Just going back to the people who have, who have gone on the record as saying that, that the prisoner and Magoon have influenced them. Uh, you have uh, Alan Moore, who has um, a really interesting sort of text interview with uh, David Bushman from the Paley Centre, where he talks about uh, what it was like to watch the prisoner when it was first on and the influence it had on him in terms of how he sort of conceived storytelling as well. Again, in the world of TV, Joss Whedon's spoken about his love of the show. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who's the creator of Babylon 5, he's spoken at length about his his love of the show. He's tweeted many, many times about it, including his own theories about, about what the show was uh, was about, you know, who number six was, etc. Didn't he try and cast Patrick McGoohan in Babylon 5 he, at one point? He did, he did. Um, but it didn't work out. And in the end, I think he settled for just putting lots of very subtle nods to the prisoner in the show as well. <laughs> Uh, there's been a lot of talk about people trying to make film versions of uh, The Prisoner as well. So not just Patrick McGoon, who tried it, I think, in the in the 90s. But more recently, there have been attempts by Christopher Nolan and Ridley Scott to bring a version of The Prisoner to the screen. I hope that never really happens. Um, I'd like The Prisoner to kind of stay as it, as it was as the TV show. I think, you know, I'm going to forget the remake ever happened. Both those filmmakers have, have spoken about how radical the show was, how it was you know, a real eye-opener for them in terms of what you were seeing on television. Because I think what's important with The Prisoner is it wasn't something you had to go and see at the cinema. It was as impactful as you might expect cinema of that era to be, but it was on television. So it was, you know, a whole amount more accessible than something that was in, in a movie theatre at the time. And so I think following up on, you know, just a, a few of the many creators who have spoken about the influence of The Prisoner on their their own work, I think it's quite interesting to know how many times number six, the iconography of the prisoner, the plot points, the quotes have actually popped up in other media, whether it's TV or film uh, or music. So we were kind of, again, trawling the internet to find out how many times we could find prisoner references in other TV shows, <laughs> um, many of which we knew about, but there were a surprising number that we were like, oh, I didn't realise that was there or, the, or that was there. And you can find little clips of these things on YouTube. And it's really incredible how people have really gone all out in, in putting very direct prisoner references <laughs> in sometimes quite obscure shows, cartoons, all kinds of different things, even procedurals, which you know are so formulaic. Clearly, people were influenced by the prisoner in some ways. So, so I think here's kind of a list of of some of the TV shows where there are links to the prisoner. Yeah. So I think you have to begin with Columbo, right? <laughs> because Patrick McGoon was involved in so many episodes, whether as an actor or as a director. But the episode Identity Crisis, which has multiple direct nods to the prisoner in it, is very intentional. That plus that episode of The Simpsons. Uh, called the computable menace shoes where again Patrick McGowan appears or rather his voice appears mm. in the episode and the whole thing is an homage to the prisoner again both of them really unusual because McGowan you know didn't really want to revisit the world of the prisoner in interviews and things like that or even creatively so it's kind of interesting that he would choose Columbo and, and the Simpsons of course, it's The Simpsons when it was at its peak to say this is the time I'd like to return to that kind of story, yeah, even in a slightly playful way. Mm. And there are a couple of other episodes of The Simpsons that have prisoner references in them. Um, I think there's one where Marge is escaping from a cult and there are all these booby traps trying to prevent her from escaping. Mm. One of them is Rover that <laughs> chases her. And it, it just shows you how iconic Rover as a, a visual thing has become that 
you can reference the entire show just from a floating sphere. <laughs> and an even more tenuous link from The Simpsons itself, and staying within the world of cartoons, which have a link to The Prisoner, is G.I. Joe, <laughs> which has um, an episode, I think a multi-part episode, called There's No Place Like Springfield, which has lots of Prisoner references in. Um, but, but other cartoons that exist um, with Prisoner references, there's Pinky and the Brain, with the episode Brainwashed. There's an episode of Reboot, if anyone remembers that, called Number 7. And I remember watching Reboot, and that had lots of references to other TV shows in it, but I had no idea until recently there was a, there was a Prisoner-based episode as well. Um, and another one we found called uh, Megas XLR, which I have no idea about, but you can find that online. And uh, yeah, there are lots of bizarre uh, quotes and callbacks to The Prisoner as well. So clearly the creators of that had a bit of fun playing around with The Prisoner in that show. Yeah, it's, it seems to involve lots of giant robots and some kind of other dimension. The robots will have numbers on them. I, I couldn't actually follow what else was going on in the episode, but The Prisoner references were front and centre in that episode. Yeah, And it speaks to the fact that you find references to The Prisoner in all kinds of TV shows. It, it pops up in things which have, uh, which are from different genres, uh, things which are aimed at adults, things which are aimed at kids. Um, you've got cartoons, you've got uh, live action things. It also appears in different countries. So speaking to kind of the, you know, the global influence that The Prisoner had, you find it in a lot of shows from the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, there's a show called Danger 5, which is on YouTube, <laughs> which is like some weird, it's kind of like a, a Garth Marenghi's Dark Place kind of style spoof, but for those kind of 60s spy-fi action shows, but with a, a strange World War II bent as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that has a lot, of, a lot of strange references to The Prisoner, most notably in the character, I think, what, who's an eagle? Who, who wears number six's blazer for some reason. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of genre shows from the 90s that had episodes which were very much based on the idea of the village as a place where spies would get retired to. <laughs> one of them is Nowhere Man. Now, this was a series that only lasted one season, and I remember watching it back in the late 90s. It, it was on in the middle of the night on ITV, I think, but I got hooked to it. And it's a show about a journalist who takes a photograph that has implications for some massive government conspiracy and he finds his whole life gets erased and he goes on the run. And it's all very kind of post-X-Files, that kind of era. But there's an episode called Paradise on Your Doorstep in which he finds himself in this community of people who have been retired in some way and on the surface of it, it all seems very nice. It seems like a, a lovely place to live. But just like the village underneath it, there's a, a, a darkness and a, a controlling aspect to it that covers everybody's lives. And the other one is The Invisible Man, which I think lasted two seasons in the late 90s, early noughties, I think it was. It's an episode called A Sense of Community, where, again, the, the two main characters find themselves stuck in this mysterious place that they're not allowed to leave and there's all these retired spies there and it has references not just to the prisoner but to other classic 60s spy-fi um, for example at one point a character dressed as Steed walks past <laughs> them and they make a reference to that being the actual guy from the TV show as if it was all real so it, it all gets very meta and then you've got loads of other 
you know, references popping up. Uh, one cartoon uh, that we missed was uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. Which yeah. um, but also you have uh, the remake of Battlestar Galactica. You have the Sam Raimi Hercules TV show um, that was made, um, was made in Australia. No, it was made in New Zealand, wasn't it? I think. Um, Mad Men, most recently. Um, Persons of Interest, which I think is from the J.J. Abrams stable. The Bionic Woman as well, where its final its final episode, I think, is, is largely prisoner-related. Yeah, with, with the idea that she knows too much and so the government forces are pursuing her to try and protect the information that she has. It, essentially, it's as if someone's going on the run before getting taken to the village. Mm. And I think the most interesting adaptation in some respects of, of the world of the prisoner most recently has been The Good Place, which we'll probably mm. talk about in a separate episode in the future. But there's a lot to be said about the links between The Prisoner and The Good Place, which I think is very clear from the TV show, but I haven't seen any explicit interviews with uh, Michael Scher, who created The Good Place, on on talking about the influence of The Prisoner in it, but it's clear that it's there, and it's, it's sort of in that show's DNA. Yeah, it's, I, we don't want to get too much into The Good Place now because we don't want to give any spoilers for The Good Place if you haven't seen it, other than to say, go out and see it. But I think, in particular, when you start watching it, just the aesthetics mm. of it, the, the sunshine, the colours, there's, there's so much of, of the prisoner in that space, mm. right from the off. But we'll talk about it in an episode where we can be all spoilery. And was it Babylon 5 where they have a message on, on the screen, which is written <laughs> like the first word of each bit of text that comes up? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, you see several shots of what look like uh, lists of random words appearing on the screen. And if you look at the first word in each list, it starts to spell out, I am not a number. <laughs> but, but some of the words are different. So not is K-N-O-T, for example. So you have to really pay attention to see that it's there. Yeah. And I think moving out of like mainstream dramas and things like that, you then get the prisoner influencing you know, stylistic choices in, in advertising and, and normal sort of TV shows as well. So there's the famous Renault 21 ads that aired, uh, which were uh, Prisoner-inspired. Jules Holland is a huge fan of The Prisoner and also Port Merion itself. He has uh, his spoof from uh, The Tube, which is uh, The Laughing Prisoner, mm. which has lots of sort of famous comedians of the era popping up and, and Jules himself doing a, a reenactment of the uh, opening sequence of the show. Probably most obscure... Is is the uh, set that is used in uh, Bob Mills in Bed with Me Dinner? Yes. <laughs> if if there's anyone else out there who remembers watching In Bed with Me Dinner, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I think I think the main point is it's it's influences absolutely everywhere. Jules Holland, I think that that also links to the fact that there's lots of prisoner inspired music. And I think we'll do an episode on this one day, mm. which is about you know how uh, most obviously with um, you know Iron Maiden, there are lots of bands and musicians. Um, and artists in other media who I think have clearly been influenced by uh, McGowan and uh, and The Prisoner as well. So I think we'll cover that at some point in the future. But needless to say, it's, you know, it does move outside of screen and into uh, and into music as well. Yeah, and, and I think there have been several instances of British sitcoms over the last sort of twenty years hmm. making kind of nodding references to The Prisoner in their episodes. So there's an episode of Coupling where there's a dream sequence that's based on The Prisoner. There's an episode of 2.4 Children called Seven Dials, which I think actually shots were in Port Marion. Um, and, the, and the whole episode is like an homage to the prisoner. You know, it's probably 
much harder to list all the ways it's influenced or been referenced in in films. But I think two of our favourite ones that I suppose are ones that happen to feature Keanu Reeves as well, who would probably make quite a good number six if they ever did decide to do anything <laughs> but, um, uh, with The Prisoner, are a brief snippet of, of uh, Arrival, which appears in, in The Matrix. Yes. So um, in one of the scenes in The Matrix, somebody's watching it on television. Yeah. It's, it's a blink and you'll miss it moment, but uh, it's, it's there up on the screen. And I think most recently, it's been the John Wick franchise, <laughs> which has a stupid amount of references to the prisoner in it. Um, all intentional. All intentional, I think it has to be said. But it's remarkable how not only there are there references, but there are some really obvious sort of conceptual links that, you know, if you really want to go crazy tangential, maybe one day we'll do an episode about, about the links between the prisoner and, and the John Wick movies. Oh, I'll promise. Can I do that episode? <laughs> But I think you've got the, the very obvious things of people using the phrase be seeing you to one another. And then some of the moments of everybody just freezing in the park mm. is is straight out of arrival. Yeah. Yeah, and it'd be fun to kind of revisit some of these ideas about influences, I think, in the future. So you've heard us talk about The Prisoner in Twin Peaks now for a couple of hours. And uh, we've certainly made a lot of references to things that Mark Frost, co-creator of Twin Peaks, has said in reference to the influence of the prisoner on his career path. But as a special treat, uh, we also have a brief clip, which is from an interview made in 1990 with Patrick McGowan himself, where he actually talks a little bit about his thoughts on the unique nature of Twin Peaks and David Lynch. And I think is obliquely referencing how it has garnered its own kind of cult niche audience in 1990 in the same way that The Prisoner would have done the same thing in the late 60s. So we'd also like to thank Coit Media, who um, have put out this full interview, which is part of the Prisoner Essential Interview series. It's available from uh, their online shop, theprisonershop.co.uk, um, and it's well worth a listen. But this is that little clip of Patrick McGowan himself talking about Twin Peaks and David Lynch. But now the climate has changed. I mean, for instance, they've just brought out this limited series of Twin Peaks. Have you had that over here? There was outcry about that over in the States. And they've got huge audiences and nobody knows what that's about. David Lynch is, is he's got a sort of niche where he can he can do these offbeat things, you know. Um, he's just brought out this <coughs> movie, what's it called? The Wild something or other. Wild Apart, is it? Yeah. And that's a fire out. Mm, sure. So, I mean, he can sort of kind of write his own ticket at the moment. I don't think I'd ever be in that So that was a clip from an interview with Patrick McGowan by Howard Foy, uh, made in 1990. I think it was originally published in print in the first issue of The Box magazine. And it's available from theprisonershop.co.uk, published by Coit Media. So we've piled on an awful lot of information in the last couple of hours, including references to a lot of interviews that we're going to put links to on our website. Some of the articles, if you're interested in reading them, there'll be a, a blog post accompanying this episode, and we'll put links to everything that we referenced up there, everything that we can find. Yeah, and do also check out our previous Twin Peaks and, and, and Tally Ho podcasts, um, especially the ones that might be of interest to Twin Peaks fans who are interested in getting into The Prisoner because uh, 
I think as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we had a couple of extended interviews with Chris Rodley, which are really interesting if you want to learn about the worlds of, of Patrick McGowan and Lynch from somebody who, who interviewed them and got to know them quite well, made some quite definitive uh, biographies in, you know, in various formats around, around both uh, creators as well. I think also it's, you know, it's been a bit of a ramble this episode. Um, <laughs> our, our episodes often are, but it's been fun to get back to talking about The Prisoner and, and, and move a little bit more into the influences that the show has had um, in this first instance on Twin Peaks, which is one of our other you know, really favourite loves as well. But coming up on the tally-ho, um, we are going to be delving a little bit more into the oeuvre of, uh, of Magoon in other things as well. Immediately on the list, we've got episodes coming up which are going to be about Brand and also Hell Drivers. Uh, I'm not sure which order they'll come out with, but we'll, we'll put those out in the near future too. And that'll be us sort of starting to open up the tally-ho into things initially prisoner-related, but maybe moving more into other kind of cult and classic TV shows as well. We've loved talking about all of the weird and wonderful connections that we can find between Twin Peaks and The Prisoner. Uh, if there's any that you think that we've missed or that are connections that you particularly love, do drop us a line on Twitter at TFCAA, on our Facebook page, Time for Cakes Now, or on our website, timeforcakesnow.com. Yep. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please uh, subscribe to us. And if you are on iTunes or you're in a place where you can leave us a review, please drop by and do so. because It's really nice to know what people think of the podcast and the episodes we're putting out. And as always, we love hearing from people who are listening to the episodes about their thoughts on what we're rambling about as well. But for now, from the Tally Ho podcast, be seeing you. you.